Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. The title of my message this morning is God is Good and He Knows What He's Doing. We're going to continue with our sermon series based on the book of Job. When we experience pain, suffering, and difficulties, it is perfectly natural to ask, why? Why this? Why me? Why them? Why us? Why then? Why now? Ultimately, ultimately though, when you distill all of our questions, they're about God's character and his ways. And sometimes the questions that we have for God have a cynical, caustic tone to it, like this person who asked, if God is really so great, then why does he act like a jerk sometimes? If God is really so great, why does he act like a jerk sometimes? And nowhere is this question more wrestled with than in the book of Job. In an instant, Job goes from hero to zero. He goes from having everything in life to having nothing. The issues of suffering and and evil are the perennial issues people have with the existence and the goodness of God. However, I hope that you've learned through our series in the book of Job that questions of God are not necessarily a lack of faith, that there is room for doubt as long as we're not stuck in it. And we see that in the case with Job. He did not turn into a cynical, bitter, angry person who loses faith in God, quite the contrary. We see Job's faith in God restore, rebuild, renewed. But how did this happen? You must be asking. You'll recall that Job has been insisting on having a one-to-one before God. Confident that if he pled his case before God, that God would vindicate him. But he comes perilously close to being self-righteous in the course of justifying himself before God. Well, God in his grace obliges and speaks to Job, transforming Job in the process. More on this later. But before this exchange occurs, we we are introduced to a new character by the name of Elihu, or Elihu, you might ask. He suddenly appears in chapter 32. Although it's very clear from his speeches to Job that goes until chapter 37 that he's been there all along listening to the conversations between Job and his three friends. And scholars are divided about Elihu and his speeches. Some hold Elihu in high regard, arguing that he's way more sympathetic than Job's other three friends. And his speeches Uh, to Job served to prepare Job's heart to receive God's word, much like John the Baptist, whose ministry paved the way for Jesus' ministry. But then there are others who view Elihu as a young, uh, abrasive, insensitive lad, spouting uh, cut and dried answers to Job's questions, steep in anguish, and that Elihu is just merely repeating the claims of Job's three friends. Surprising, you know, you have these two views. Some say he's a good guy, some say, ah, not too sure. He's just like his other three friends. And some scholars 
even go as far as arguing that chapters 32 to 37 are not part of the original composition but added to Job at a later date. The reason being Elihu's speeches, Elihu's presence seem out of place and unnecessary. You can make up your own mind what's what, but I'm just gonna skip his speeches, five chapters worth of speeches and go straight uh, to God's reply to Job. Remember throughout the book, Job has been firing a volley of questions at God about his character and about his ways. God lets him carry on uninterrupted, but Job's questions can be summed up like this. God, what possible just reasons could there be for you to let me suffer like this? God, what possible just reasons could there be for you to let me suffer like this? When God does not respond immediately, Job's friends try to speak on his behalf and basically said to Job, you are under God's judgment, Job, because you have sinned against God. And they get into huge trouble with God for saying that. Because God knows, we know from the prologue, and Job knows within his own heart that his friends are dead wrong. In Job 38 to 41, God who has been silent all this time, finally in an act of grace, speaks out of the storm to Job never once attempting to justify himself. We've now reached the climax of the book of Job. However, God's answer is nothing like we or Job expect, or I would suggest find satisfactory, because God doesn't really provide any clear response to Job's main question. Some readers, Maybe you may may wonder if God's response to Job was nothing more than an exercise in confusing things designed to bully Job, intimidate Job, rather than offer him real answers. Take for instance, the famous playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who wryly quipped after reading Job's reply. If I complain that I'm suffering unjustly, it is no answer to say, can you make a hippopotamus? which is a reference to the creature behemoth in Job 40. Of course, God does no such thing as we will see. However, in the two speeches that God delivers to Job from chapter 38, verse two to 42, and 40, uh, verse six to 41, 34, followed by Job's response in each speech, in 43 to five and 42, one to six, Job is rebuked. Job is rebuked, but not derided or belittled for speaking without knowledge. And the difference between the two is huge. God does sternly rebuke Job, but not deride him, not belittle him. There is a big difference. This is how God begins in his reply to Job, chapter 38, verses 2 to 3. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And from that point onwards, uh, God asked Job a series of rhetorical questions about creation from its origin and his care of it 
all designed to show the extreme limitations of human knowledge and wisdom, and in this case, Job's, and contrast it with true knowledge and wisdom, which lies with him and him alone, the creator and sustainer of all things. In his rhetorical questions, uh, God gives rapid sketches of 19 inanimate and living things, all revealing the grandness, the majesty, the mysteriousness, and the complexity of God's works. Here's the list, which is only a sample, by the way, and it's not in any order of importance. The earth, the sea, the morning, the underworld, the light, storehouses of snow. Um, Daryl, I remember once asked many years ago when we, when, we, when we sang the song Indescribable that we will sing later on. Oh, where's the reference on storehouses of snow? It's actually found in Job chapter 40, uh, sorry, Job chapter 38, 22 to 23. A storm, the rain, various constellations, clouds, the lion, ravens, the mountain goat, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, the falcon. And then God ends his speech of the question of Job in chapter 40, verses one to two. And the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. While Job's conduct was above reproach, his knowledge of God was not. His knowledge of God, like ours, is very limited, it's very finite, incomplete, and it's flawed. See, God doesn't take issue with Job for being in ignorance but that he spoke as if he did have complete knowledge of God. That's the issue that God took with Job. Not for his ignorance, but pretending that he wasn't, pretending that he knew it all about God. And this is just by, by the way, and a di little digression. I don't know if I'm the only one here, but when I read Job's, uh, God's response, I can't help but imagine God sounding like David Attenborough, narrating on the Our Planet series, you know? In fact, I wonder if, if as God speaks, whether Job is given a vision of all the various scenes of creation that God is describing in technicolor and with sound effects thrown in. You know, verses, uh, chapter 38, verses four to five, eight to 11. It's not gonna be a good impersonation, I'll just try. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Do you imagine that? I can imagine that. God sounding like David Attenborough. Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know who stretched a measuring, measuring line across it, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said this far you may come and no further, here's where your proud waves halt. Notice how God describes his creation like they're living organisms. Job 43 to five, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, 
but I will say no more. Now, at first glance, Job's response seems contrite, seems submissive, but if so, it seems strange why God feels the need to speak for a second time, all right? I would like to put it to you that Job is sticking to his guns here. Yes, placing his hand over his mouth could be a mark of respect, but notice Job does not withdraw his charge that God has committed a gross injustice against him. He continues to blame God for his troubles, even though he doesn't curse God to his face. But it'd be going too far to suggest that Job is being defiant here or whinging to God for not answering his questions. I think we can simply argue that Job has nothing to say to God that he hasn't already said. Job's second speech from 46 to 41, 34, challenge begins much like his first speech in verses six to seven, chapter 40. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. In the preceding chapters, in the following chapters, I mean, in the preceding chapters, we saw clearly Job getting increasingly self-centered in his demand to be vindicated by God. That's akin to self-deification, the essence of what human sinfulness is. See, God is not answerable to Job or us about his character and his ways. God is God and we are not. We do not have the ability nor the right to justify ourselves nor demand that God justifies himself. This is the point that God makes in the next lot of questions from chapter 40, verses eight to 14. Would you discredit my justice, Job? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like mine? And can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him down. Bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. God is basically saying to Job there, Job, if you can do what I can do, I will worship you myself. I will worship you myself. To illustrate Job's finitude, God asked Job how he might fare against the behemoth. 40 verses 15 to 24 and the Leviathan in chapter 41. Some scholars say that the behemoth and Leviathan are myth, uh, mythological creatures. But many scholars are of the view that they're the real deal with the behemoth being the hippopotamus and the Leviathan being either a crocodile or a whale. But Job 14:15 explicitly states, look at the behemoth which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. So there's a case that perhaps they're not mythological creatures, but real creatures. Now, if it is utter insanity for Job to consider a jewel 
with the behemoth and Leviathan, never mind win in such a contest. If these beasts are beyond Job's control, but who are God's creation and pets, then how could God be so foolhardy to stand up against? How can Job be so foolhardy to stand against God? That's the point that God's making to Job. If you cannot possibly win in a contest against these creatures whom I have made and I call my pets, who do you think you are? To think that you can stand against me in the manner that you have. Again, let me be clear that God's intention here is not to humiliate, is not to belittle, is not to, to rub it in on Job. An Aussie scholar by the name of Francis Anderson writes, the argument to the superior strength of God is made not to discourage men from having dealings with God, but to enhance God's capability of managing the affairs of the universe so that men will trust him. That's all God is doing. Not to belittle Job, but to give his credentials to Job. Now, Job is truly humble and contrite this time around by God's goodness, by God's revelation of greatness, by God's revelation of wisdom. It is all too much for him to handle. Verse 5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Then, then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The word despise means deeply ashamed. The difficult word translated as repent is not used in the way we frequently understand it to mean. That is penitence for sins. It simply means here a change of mind. That is, Job wishes to retract all of his misguided assumptions about God's character and his ways. So Job is not saying here, God, God, my friends have been right about me all along. I have sinned and I'm deserving of my punishment. He confesses no sins here. It is most likely that Job is saying, God, I am ashamed. And I have been very foolish for challenging your character and your ways all this while, for hastily and in ignorance jumping to wrong conclusions about you. I withdraw them. I hear you. And I accept my situation. And therefore, I wish to announce the end of my mourning, the ashes and dust bit. Now, these are very stunning words for two reasons. Job's confession are very stunning for two reasons. First, firstly, 
His words here are the complete opposite of his lament back in chapter 3. I would encourage you to read chapter 3 and then jump to chapter 42 and 1 to 6, and you'll see the contrast between the two. It's night and day. In chapter 3, he is down in the pit in complete darkness, but here he's coming out of darkness. Job is truly transformed, and yet, if you don't mind me saying, Job, uh, God doesn't say anything that is earth-shattering. That in some ways, Job's friends try to convey to Job. Uh, Job's friends try to convey to Job, but as Mike Mason astutely points out, but because it is God alone and no one else who speaks, that is what makes all the difference. He explains an art critic might tell us quite a bit about the paintings at Sistine Chapel. But it would, be not the, it would not be the same as talking to Michelangelo, let alone Michelangelo's creator. You see that? It is God himself who's speaking here. That makes all the difference. The second reason why Job's words are stunning is because Job is still suffering. Job is still suffering. Job's circumstance has not changed one iota. He does not know that verse 7 is coming up, okay? We know what's going to happen. He has no idea what is about to take place, that his life is going to turn around, that God was going to restore everything that he had lost. No idea. And yet he's saying, God, I submit to you. He's still in pain. He's still in suffering. His questions have not been answered. God doesn't tell Job what we have a glimpse of back in the prologue, the heavenly, uh, great heavenly council with God and the angels and Satan present. I don't know whether you have thought, I certainly have, God, why didn't you tell him? Surely this would have provided Job much needed perspective and some measure of comfort for his suffering. Anybody thought that? God, why? It's just a little snippet of knowledge. Doesn't cost you a thing to just let Job know. Job, this is why you've been going through what you've been going through. I know if I were Job, I would have gone, yeah, all right. Now I understand. But God in his infinite wisdom decides not to tell him. Job knows God is with him, and that is enough. We see again that Job has proven Satan wrong, that Job does fear God for nothing. He fears God for God alone, not because he knows that everything he, he has lost will be restored. That is a man of faith. Yeah, that is a man of faith. It is so vital that we grasp God's response if we are to face the brutal realities of the fallen world in which we live. And we will face them with faith, wisdom, and strength. So what is it that we must learn? Let me suggest just one thing. God's reply to Job, as we've seen, was not a detailed explanation of why Job suffered but a deeper revelation of his character and his ways. 
That's it. That was God's response to Job, and that was what transformed Job's life. Not that God answered all of his why questions. None at all. But that God revealed more of himself to Job. Is that enough for you? Will that be enough for you? Or will you be saying, God, questions. I've got more questions. You have not answered my questions. You need to answer my questions, and then I'll start believing you. But until that happens, no deal. That's all God did. He revealed more of himself, his character, and his ways to Job. And for Job, that was enough. If I may be so bold, let me paraphrase what I think God is saying to Job and to all of us, especially if we find ourselves in a storm. Job, or you can put your name there, it's not easy for you to see this right now, but I am a good God and I know exactly what I'm doing. My purpose for you is always, has and always will be to give you a future and a hope rather than to harm you, even in the midst of the suffering like you are going through right now. While I'm not threatened or put off by your honesty with me, with your feelings and questions, you need to trust me without insisting that I must first answer all your questions and justify myself to you. Would that be about right? I think that's essentially what God is trying to say to Job. You need to trust me without insisting that I must first answer all of your questions. I'm saying you don't need me to answer all your questions before you will trust me. I will not answer your questions. Will you still trust me? Am I enough? Am I enough? Mike Mason puts it this way. If we find it exasperating that God never gives Job any reasons for his long ordeal of suffering, then we have entirely missed the point of these final chapters. While it is true that the Lord's answer to Job is neither logical nor theological, this is not the same as saying that he gives no answer. The Lord does give an answer. His answer is himself. His answer is himself. Perhaps the purpose of Job is not intended to bring comfort to the suffering as much as to bring us wisdom that might prevent us from blaming God, the alternative being to trust God, that he is good, that he does indeed know what he's doing, even if we can't see it. And the book of Job gives us a focus for our faith. Walton, a Bible commentator on Job writes, too often, and I want to close with this. Too often we focus our faith on believing that God will heal, that God will relieve our suffering, and that God will protect us from pain. Sometimes our, our faith lies in the belief that somehow, that God will somehow come to us and give us explanations. Other times we place our faith in our ability to force our experiences into a narrative, into a coherent, meaning, meaningful narrative. All these approaches are unrealistic. Our faith should be directed toward embracing an all-wise God and asking him for help to live well before him regardless of our plight in this world that continues to display both order and disorder. Another way of uh, saying this is through this anonymous quote. 
God never gives us what we can handle. Rather, he helps us handle what we're given. God doesn't give us what we can handle. Rather, he will help us handle what we are given. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize from the outset that our journey with you contains many twists, many turns, that there are highs and that there are lows. There are moments where it's freezing cold and there are moments where it's free, where it is uh, stifling hot. There are moments where we're in a fog and there are moments where the days are sunny and we can see clearly what's in front of us. We just don't know when these seasons will come. We don't even know when, how long these seasons will be, but they will come. And some days, Lord, we're like Paul, where we're given a, tor a thorn that torments. And we have perhaps pled with you again and again and again, have mercy on us and to have this thorn removed from us. Instead, you give us an answer, not one that we expect. In fact, an answer that completely frustrates us, that completely leaves us with a sense of you don't care, you don't love us. We want a fix. We want a solution outside of you. And yet often you offer us yourself as the solution. My grace is sufficient for you. Your words to Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm offering you me. I'm not offering an answer. I'm not offering a solution. I'm offering me. Help us see that you are enough. Help us see that your presence is enough. And in response, we want to place our lives afresh once again into the hands of an all-good and all-wise God. Through the presence and through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us live well no matter what seasons of life we find ourselves in and how long that season might last. Give us faith in you, Lord. Increase our faith in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.